0: So Dr. Keith, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on Cocoa Pods podcast. This is a podcast of the Broad Centre for the Natural Deliveries Foundation, where we discuss all the issues about the health of the mother, including that of the prospective mother, and especially of minority women. It is our hope that talking about these issues contribute uh, to continued increased awareness and leads to steps of alleviation in areas where problems remain. By way of brief reintroduction, uh, my name is Dr. Bola Sogade. For our new listeners, I'm a birth certified obstetrician gynecologist. I'm a family physician and a minimally invasive gynecologic robotic surgeon in the middle Georgia area. I founded the OB Gyne Birth Center for Natural Deliveries, the first of its kind in the state of Georgia, out of a dire community need. The Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation was a natural consequence of my advocacy for better women's health. Cocoa Pods is available on all major podcast platforms and the podcast airs new episode every Thursday. Dr. Keith, thank you so much for coming to the Cocoa Pods podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Thank you. You consume a vegan diet, and I'm almost there. And you you advocate this vegan diet to anybody that would listen. So can you please tell us about some of the benefits of this lifestyle?
1: Absolutely. And you're right. I will talk to anybody about my vegan diet who listens to me. <laughs> Try not to preach about it. But yes, um, I'm very passionate about it because I adopted a plant-based uh, diet nine years ago when I was overweight And my hemoglobin A1C was creeping up just a little bit. So an A1C is a marker of diabetes or pre-diabetes. It's a blood test that can tell the level of sugar that's attached to the hemoglobin molecules in your blood. And so my A1C was kind of borderline getting close to the pre-diabetic range and I was overweight. So I decided to make some changes personally in my diet and lifestyle. So I started by just making my own vegetable juices, making smoothies, um, and just removing meat from my diet. And then five years ago, I switched to completely plant-based diet with no animal products or no dairy. So I've been vegan for the last five years. And personally, I have lost weight, feel much better. My energy is better. My A1C has come down um, and my health profile is better. And especially in our community where so many of our chronic diseases are related to our lifestyle, I think it's very important for us to also have less meat and animal products in our diet we have the highest incidence of hypertension, diabetes, cancers, obesity in the black community. And all of these in some way are tied to our diet and our physical activity or how much physical activity we get.
0: And so there's definitely
1: a benefit to having less meat, but not just meat, but other animal products. So butter, eggs, milk, and cheese also have cholesterol, fat and hormones that can increase our risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, and things like that.
0: Wow. Wow. Thank you. That is so educative. Now, you know, with you coming on this podcast, we've had a lot of questions coming in from Mm -hmm. patients, from medical students, from residents, from husbands. And one of the questions was posed by one of our medical students, Kyla E. Swin. She's actually a third year medical student. Mm -hmm. She's, She's a chapter president of the Medical Students for Choice. She's a course director of the American Medical Students Association Reproductive Health Scholars Program. And I'll pose you some of the questions that she asked. One of them was, what kinds of problems do you typically help people with? And I'm going to go into your biography soon, but I just want to get some of these questions going. What kinds of problems do you typically help people with? And how can someone better understand and take control of their fertility? in their everyday
1: life? Excellent question. Thank you, Kyla. So I am a fertility specialist. I'm board certified in OBGYN and I practiced general obstetrics and gynecology for almost five years. And then I went back and did specialty training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, or we call it REI, which is a subspecialty of OBGYN where I only take care of fertility patients at this point. And so I see patients with all different types of fertility factors, any single woman or couple, same sex couples who are having trouble getting pregnant or they're ready to have their children, then they come to my practice for help. And so I see women who are having issues with ovulation, with egg reserve, uterine fibroids, sometimes block fallopian tubes. If there's a male partner present, there may be a sperm issue. We see young ladies who freeze their eggs if they're not ready to be pregnant. We see women who have received a cancer diagnosis and can freeze their eggs while they go through their chemotherapy. We can freeze sperm from men prior to them receiving uh, cancer treatment um, as well. We see many women with polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. So we see the whole spectrum of fertility patients in my practice.
0: Wow. And another question that she had was, what advice would you give someone who has a reproductive uh, health problem and they can't seem to find an answer or diagnosis for that? And the, the other one is, what is one thing you think is most important for the general public to understand about their reproductive
1: health? So, one thing that I always like to talk about just in general and in public is that women's fertility changes as we get older. And a lot of women don't really appreciate this. For men, if the testicles functioning normally, they will produce brand new sperm from scratch. Every two or three months, and they will continue that through their lifetime from puberty until they're 50, 60, maybe 70 years old, which is why we often see men who are in their 50s and 60s who can still father children. They have fresh, viable sperm and they're still fertile. But for all females, we are born with all the eggs we have. And as we get into our late 30s and over 40, our fertility starts to reflect our age. The reason is that we have most of our eggs in our ovaries before we are born. So when we're halfway through a pregnancy, around 20 weeks of pregnancy, we have six or seven million eggs in our fetal ovaries. By the time we're born, we have dropped down to about one million. And we do not replace our egg count the way that men replenish their sperm. So that million count continues to drift down for each of us. And it's a gradual process over time. But the main factor is that every cycle from puberty forward When your cycle starts, there's a wave of 50 or so microscopic eggs that start to form. Some of those will develop into what's called a follicle. A follicle is a tiny cyst in the ovary with a growing egg inside. And then naturally, one of those follicles will go all the way. And that's the one that we ovulate that cycle. If you're not pregnant... Two weeks after you ovulate, you'll have a period and the next month you start over with a brand new wave of eggs and follicles and ultimately one that ovulates. So there are many eggs that go by every cycle, not just the ovulated one. And that really starts to add up by the time we're in our late 30s and 40s and we see our egg count start to go down the other factor is that our egg quality also reflects our age because the eggs that we are ovulating are the same eggs that we were born with. So as we've been getting older, our eggs have been aging and we start to see egg quality issues in late 30s and over 40, which means we're at increased risk of miscarriage or having pregnancies with a chromosome problem like Down syndrome or things like that once we're close to an over 40. And so I really just want women to appreciate and understand that we are on a timeline with our fertility. And we always recommend pursuing pregnancy when your egg reserve and your age is more favorable because it can be more of a challenge even to do high-tech fertility treatments once we get to a certain age.
0: Wow. And then these questions are from intern resident, Lade. And one of the questions that she asked was, what are the options for people based on their level of insurance for reproductive Treatment, you know, for people that cannot get pregnant and they want treatment, what are the options for people based on their level of insurance? And for those who do have insurance, how do they navigate when their plans do not adequately cover all their treatment?
1: Unfortunately, Georgia is not a mandated state. There are many states in the Northeast that have mandates where, insur- where insurance covers fertility treatment for all who have insurance there. Um, in Georgia, it's about 60% of residents have some fertility coverage through their insurer. It's very individualized. So even within a particular insurance group, there are some plans which may cover fertility treatment and others which may not. There are some plans that have a certain amount of money, like a lifetime max of $25,000 or so that you can use toward any fertility treatment. There are some plans that will cover insemination, but not in vitro. They may or may not cover medication. So you really have to investigate your particular insurance policy and carrier and ask them specific questions like, not just do you cover fertility treatment, but if you do, What services do you cover? Does it cover insemination? Does it cover medications? Is there a maximum? Is there a renewal? Is what you have to focus on with your insurer? The basics before we get to determining what treatment we're going to prescribe is to do just the foundation of treatment um, for a woman or a couple. And so we have to establish the egg reserve. We have to make sure that the uterus is healthy and that the fallopian tubes are open. If there's a male partner, we want to investigate if the sperm count is normal. Based on that testing, then we can determine if they're a candidate for insemination, which is less invasive and less expensive, or if there are indications where they need to prepare for in vitro or IVF, which can be more expensive, especially if it's out of pocket. Wow, wow. And then one other question from Lade, sent in that data
0: show women in medicine uh, are not married to Non-medicine, especially surgeons, women in medicine, especially surgeons and surgery trainees, have higher rates of infertility compared to couples in which the man is the surgeon and you know not the woman. is this is is there data out there?
1: This is very interesting. And there are a couple of studies. Um, There was one that was released, I believe in 2016. And then there was research presented earlier this year, which does show that for the female physicians and surgeons who were surveyed, that they had a higher um, risk of having infertility compared to the general population. So in the, in the female physicians and surgeons, it was one in four. And what we know is in the general population, it's about one in eight women or couples have infertility. So it's double um, in this population. And we're not exactly sure why. This is very new information. Um, But we do know that for many professional women, not just physicians and surgeons, we often pursue our career and our education. And we kind of put our family planning on the back burner until we get established in our career. So part of it may be related to the age of the women when they're ready to start a family, that they have some of those egg reserve factors that I just mentioned. We know that medical training and residency, especially a surgical residency, is very trying physically and it's very stressful. So there may be some impact of just going through that process on just the reproductive process in the body. We don't have a good answer yet, but there are surveys which do show that um, female physicians and surgeons have higher infertility compared to the general public. And can you go
0: over those statistics again? You, You talked about one in four and one in eight. Can you just take that
1: again for clarity? Mm -hmm. So there was a study released earlier this year of um, around 700 female physicians and surgeons, and one in four of the women who were were surveyed in that study um, reported having trouble getting pregnant. And what we know is that the general statistic for infertility in this country is that one in eight. Women or couples will have trouble conceiving. And so it does look like, at least in that population of a little bit under 700 physicians, that they had twice the infertility compared to the general public. Wow, wow. You know, thank
0: you. You know, I'm going to go over your biography because mm-hmm. I'm just impressed. So, Dr. McCarthy, Dr. Desiree McCarthy Keith, you earned your medical degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And you also earned a Master of Public Health degree in Maternal and Child Health from the University of North Carolina. You completed obstetrics and gynecology residency training at Duke University Medical Center. And you did a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. During your fellowship, you did research that focused on the molecular mechanisms of uterine fibroid regulation and reproductive health disparities. You also have special interests in male and female infertility, polycystic ovary syndrome, uterine fibroids, and in vitro fertilization. You have authored several peer-reviewed publications on reproductive health, and infertility topics, and you have presented your research nationally. Prior to joining Shady Group Fertility in Atlanta, you practiced general obstetrics and gynecology in Virginia and South Carolina, while in Maryland, you treated patients with reproductive endocrine and fertility disorders at the National Institutes of Health and Walter Reed Army Medical Center. You are a lieutenant commander in the United States <laughs> Public Health Service Commission Corps and you've held the position of assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. You are passionate about your vegan way of life. You share your enthusiasm for plant-based nutrition with everyone you meet and you encourage patients to incorporate healthy diet in their fertility lifestyle. You are a native of North Carolina, and you are a proud mother of two energetic sons. You spend your free time in Atlanta visiting the zoo, strolling the botanical gardens, and cheering on, of course, the Braves. Absolutely. Yes. Impressive resume. (laughs) That was a lot. (laughs) But that is true. I am so (laughs) impressed. But can you just how did you choose this branch of medicine? I, you know, can you talk about some of your educational and professional journey? and you know just even in this podcast, we have medical students that mm-hmm. are aspiring to become obstetrician gynecologist in this room. we have Kyla in this room, she wants to be an OBGYN. Mm-hmm. what can what advice you know can you give even medical students
1: up and coming and resident? Yeah, absolutely. So I did not take a traditional path to becoming a fertility specialist. Like you mentioned, I'm from North Carolina and a proud Tar Heel. I had a great medical education experience in Chapel Hill. And because of my own experiences with just women's health, I knew that I wanted to be a women's health physician. So once I got to residency, I still enjoyed all of the different rotations that I did. But what I really realized is that OBGYN encompasses all of those so I liked surgery but I didn't want to be in the OR all day I did really well in my psychiatry rotation there's a lot of counseling and emotional support that is needed when you're working in OBGYN so OBGYN was the great specialty that allowed me to bring all of the other medical fields together to take care of women to be an advocate for women's health um, and to do some procedures and you know work with my hands also deliver babies and things like that. And so I did um, my residency um, at Duke University. And as part of our residency training, we have to rotate through the different subspecialties of OBGYN, which means we all spent time doing high risk obstetrics. We did gynecologic oncology, worked with cancer patients. We did a rotation in urogynecology, which are female reproductive disorders related to the bladder And then we did a rotation in REI, which is the reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And I loved my rotation in REI and I I enjoyed general OBGYN also, but I'm nerdy. I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of North Carolina. And so I love basic science. And REI allows us to be detectives. We get to do basic science, research. We're focusing on steroid pathways and basic science and the mechanisms of fertilization and embryo development and things like that. Um, But it still allows us to have close relationships with patients as they become parents and go through their fertility journey. So it was an excellent opportunity for me to, again, kind of meld together some of my interests. But when I was in residency, I applied for fellowship right out of residency and I did not match. So the match process is where you go through um, your residency and then you have to apply to the subspecialty programs and there are very few spots and it's very competitive. Um, At the time um, my ex-husband was in the Navy. And so I interviewed at many programs, but decided to only rank or try to match at the program that was in the city where we were going to be stationed. And so I met, I only put that one program on the list. So I did not get assigned somewhere else and I did not match there. And so when I left residency, um, that's when I practiced OBGYN for almost five years. I practiced a few years in Chesapeake, Virginia, while we were stationed with the Navy there. We got transferred to Paris Island and worked with the Marines in Beaufort, South Carolina, and I worked at a community health center there. Um, and through my experience, i took my boards, I delivered many babies and did a lot with women's health and advocacy there. And one thing I saw even in general OBGYN was many women who were having trouble getting pregnant and didn't necessarily know how to initiate the workup, where to go, who to talk to. And so even though I was practicing general OBGYN, my interest and desire in infertility was still there. So after being out for several years, I applied a second time to fellowship and had the flexibility to go wherever I needed to go at that point. I wasn't limited by geography. And I was fortunate to match at my top, my number one choice, which was the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. It was a combined program where we did lots of research. Everybody knows NIH um, at NIH, but I was also working with the military and did my fertility training and in vitro fertilization and things with the military population that was at Walter Reed in the Naval Hospital. So I did a three-year fellowship just working on infertility. That's where I did my basic science research in fibroids. Um, and it also ties into my other interest, which is health disparities. So there are several disparities in reproductive and infertility care related to Black women and fibroids is a big one. So for Black women, by the time we're 50, over 80% of us will be diagnosed with a fibroid. So that's everybody we know, either personally or a family member or a friend, um, has been impacted by fibroids. There are other disparities in infertility related to Black women. We're older, when we, when we seek fertility treatment, we're more likely to have uterine factor, tubal factor, obesity, obesity is another common factor in Black women. And all of those can impact our reproductive health and also our chance of success when we do fertility treatment. So
0: if you were going to give like a resident out there, you know, or a medical student, you know, because they all talk about this match program and mm-hmm. some people don't match, some people match where they don't want to go. You know, just looking back, what is one uh, and what, what is one piece of advice you would give them regarding, you know, just, their professional development, and maybe even if they were interested
1: in motherhood, you know, their
0: fertility options.
1: I would say, you know, never give up, you know, don't be discouraged. If you apply for a program and you don't match there, you still have excellent training as a general OBGYN where you can use that to develop your skills. When I was working, I still maintained contact with my My REI faculty from residency, I connected with an REI who was local to where I was practicing and still maintained those connections and was involved in research and patient evaluation and things like that. So, you want to stay engaged um, if you're wanting to go that path. But everyone doesn't follow the traditional path of medical school residency fellowship. You can do it differently, but you have to maximize on the time before you apply. So I worked hard, I studied, I passed my board. So compared to other applicants, I was able to say I'm board certified. I've practiced independently as a physician for several years. I'm bringing that maturity to my fellowship training And also just stay connected in REI so that I had that to discuss when I was going to my interviews and and not just, I've been out and now I've just kind of woke up and said, let me just do REI. You have to demonstrate that you've been committed to this and been working toward that, even if you take a break. So I would say, don't be discouraged. You know, sometimes you take a board exam and you might need to take it again. That just means you need to study harder. Does not mean you're not going to get there, but you just have to focus and just use every opportunity. As a stepping stone to get to where you're going to go. Um, also for just women going through residency training and medical training again, think about your fertility and your timeline and just always have that in the back of your mind so that we don't get to the you know the peak of our career and then we start thinking about family you have to really be thinking about those things at the same time. There's never a perfect time to plan a pregnancy or to have your family. you have to just you know kind of prioritize everything and just go for it. Wow, this is great advice that you're giving out
0: there. And and the residents and the interns, they wanted to hear this. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about just this fibroid uh, and minority women, Black women, and you did some studies, you know. Um, Can you just tell us in layman's terms, some of the I mean, the molecular mechanisms of fibroid regulation. I mean, why do Black women have more fibroids,
1: you know? So that is the question that we do not know the answer to. It's definitely multifactorial. I think that there's a genetic component, there's likely environmental, and there's also just exposures for us. And we just have a different life uh, history with our fibroids. When we look at long-term studies of fibroids for Black women, we develop them at a younger age, we're more likely to have multiple fibroids, they grow faster, we're more likely to have surgery for them. What's interesting is that studies that look at women with fibroids, once we get into our 40s or so kind of level off where the fibroids don't continue to grow and become a problem. But for black women, they continue to get bigger and symptomatic even once we're over 40, which is different compared to um, other ethnic groups. So what we studied during my fellowship was just how are fibroids regulated? And it's always um, the motivation is to look for treatments to manage the fibroids and alternatives to the surgery, which is still our mainstay for really removing fibroids completely. Um, And so what we know, what's interesting is that when I was doing my research, we used to do basic science research, looking at fibroid cells under the microscope and how they proliferate and grow. And when you look at fibroid cells under the microscope, they have the same cellular structure and pattern as a keloid under the microscope. And so we know that we are more likely to develop the keloid thick scars if we break the skin and things like that. And the issue with a fibroid is that there's something called contact inhibition that most cells have, which is where if the cells are growing on a surface, once they grow to a point where they touch each other, they stop developing. But for fibroids, they don't have that inhibition once there's contact and they continue to grow and proliferate and just kind of stack on top of each other, which is very similar to how keloids form. Um, And so in my research, we were looking at the GNRH antagonist. So there are hormone regulators, Um, a common one that many women probably are familiar with is Lupron, which is a GNRH agonist, which means that it stimulates antagonist means that it blocks. And so we looked at the just chemical response of fibroid cells to the GnRH antagonist, which can block estrogen production, kind of halts the fibroid um, development. But what we ultimately identified is that when you take those treatments in the short term, fibroids may shrink. But as soon as you discontinue those treatments, the fibroids kind of recur. And so it looks like there's water that may leave the fibroids and they can shrink temporarily but gnrh analogs are not medications that can be given long term they're only given for several months and then they have to be discontinued because they can put a woman into kind of a medical menopause and so what what my research focused on was just how those antagonists regulate the fibroids and what are the mechanisms that make the fibroids shrink initially but then kind of reform or swell again once you discontinue those medications Wow. Wow. That's um, important to know. Um, So the fibroid cells look
0: like keloid cells under the microscope. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow.